Welcome to another episode of Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and my goal is to get you thinking about your journey in the charitable space by featuring the very best in professional development and productivity in the nonprofit sector. I'm glad you're listening in on this conversation I have with Dr. Karen Mitchell, who coaches and trains women who are currently in leadership roles, as well as those who are hoping to advance their leadership opportunities. Through her firm called Cottage Insights, she customizes coaching programs and workshops that help develop all aspects of leadership. Karen's insight is especially relevant to our ongoing study of nonprofit leadership, and she's going to help you consider three barriers that often prevent someone from achieving their ultimate leadership goals. First thing we talked about was leadership presence. What is that, and how do we get better? Second thing we talked about is the ability to deliver presentations that inspire. And what are the components of an inspirational presentation, and how can you make yours better and more effective in your nonprofit setting? Finally, we talk about leading a team and the various skills you must master to manage your team, whether it be large or small, volunteer or paid staff. Karen's got great advice on all three of these barriers to success, and she's got three good books to recommend as well. As always, we've got these resources linked up on the show notes on the associated webpage to this episode, so please enjoy this conversation I had with Karen Mitchell. Karen, welcome to The Path. Thank you, Pat, and thank you so much for having me this morning. I'm delighted to chat with you and learn more about your journey, uh, which absolutely includes nonprofit uh, folks and work. And and I think it's very relevant, the, the great work you're doing now through Cottage Insights, coaching and consulting is very relevant to the nonprofit community that I serve. So why don't we start with, yeah, tell me a little bit about your path, uh, what led you to to the work you're doing now, and then maybe explain a little bit more about the nature of your practice. Absolutely. So yes, much of my early career was in nonprofit. My second job out of college, this was many years ago, <laughs> 20 years ago, um, approximately, um, I went to this undergraduate in Virginia. And so I had moved to Washington, DC, and was so fortunate enough to find a position with a great, large international nonprofit called Conservation International. And it was great. I mean, the mission was amazing. I was able to meet people, you know, who were from different countries, people who worked in the field offices. Um, so, you know, unfortunately, while I was not able to travel, um, you know, I, again, people will come in from different, you know, Africa, all over the world. Um, and just one of the things I learned from that experience, my first real nonprofit experience was just the passion and the enthusiasm that everyone had for the mission. So it was really Exciting. I worked in the HR department, which was great because I was able to meet people from all different types of departments, all different, you know, backgrounds. And so I really enjoyed that position. Fantastic. Um, but sadly, all things, good things have to come to an end. And at the time <laughs> when I was living in D.C., um, I'd gotten married to my husband, who um, I met in college, and so he actually had a job in Kansas City, and so I left my wonderful office in Washington, D.C., um, and I moved to Kansas City, where I did not know anyone, and so I had to kind of start over again, and so just kind of the old-fashioned way, just looked through and I tried to find a job, and fortunately ended up at another wonderful nonprofit 
Um, this one is Union Station, Kansas City, which is um, still there. Um, it's wow. this big, beautiful historic train station and um, housed in the train station is, was different exhibits in a museum. And that was the part that I worked for. So that was actually the nonprofit, again, called Union Station, Kansas City. And again, it had a science museum. It had different traveling exhibits. Um, one of the most memorable ones that I remembered when I was there was um, the Titanic exhibit came through, which is really cool. And right. um, there I also worked in human resources. And it was also, that was a great experience because I also got to work with volunteers for the first time. So we had a large volunteer um, group who helped with exhibits, who gave tours of the building. So that was really interesting to have that perspective, not just working with paid employees, but also non non-paid employees or volunteers. Which is, of course, very relevant, as you know, to the nonprofit community I'm working with, too, that it's very much a staff and volunteer-driven uh, operation in every case. And I love these experiences because it absolutely, I guess, confirms the work you, the experiences you've had, I'm sure, inform the work you're doing now. Not, I know, exclusively with nonprofit, but Cottage Insights is, you're working with, well, tell us about Cottage Insights and kind of the work you're doing now. Yeah, so um, so I actually, so kind of jumping ahead, so continuing with the nonprofit, I have been teaching at a college, which is a nonprofit for the last 14 years. And so I'm still able to do that, which is really, um, I'm thankful for that. But um, the college is actually in Pennsylvania. And so a year and a half ago, my husband and son, we took a, a path to move to Hilton Head <laughs> Island. So I'm now living on an island where there's not a lot of colleges. Right. So that's really, um, you know, and yes, and, and going back to my experiences with nonprofits, you know, I spent a lot of time, again, you know, thinking about working with the volunteers, you know, it was a different type of leadership, coaching them and mentoring them and really respecting what motivated them to show up to give up their, you know, their time each day. Um, and so that really led me to, you know, focus on my love of personal growth and personal development. And so that's where um, Cottage Insights came about. Um, I really has two arms, the organization. Um, the one is actually working directly with women on a, from a personal and development and a personal growth perspective. Um, right. Offer boxes that you can order. Um, and each one though, it's not just one of those subscription boxes where it just has a lot of items in it. The focus of each box is really looking at it, issues that matter to women, whether that's their relationships, whether that's their happiness, creativity, managing stress. So each box um, has some items focused specifically like a field guide, um, other materials to help them learn about that topic and, and grow. Um, and then the other side of it, we actually work with women-owned and women-led businesses, um, helping them grow. And we offer workshops and programs focused on communications, team development, retention, and onboarding. So it's been really exciting. That's that. perfect. Well, and perfect in that it, it is so relevant. Again, I had a, a recent episode with my colleague, Penny Hawkins, and she and I talked about issues, particularly as it relates to women in the nonprofit field. And as you know, the great majority of professionals in nonprofit are female yes. and, and they face a variety of issues. And um, many of these issues, it sounds like you address in your nonprofit and for-profit clientele. Absolutely. It was exciting, you know, with, with working with nonprofits and, and teaching at the college that I still do. I love that. And certainly I'm working with both men and women. But yes, I do think that there's specific differences and challenges that women face um, in the in the work um, force. And so I think, you know, it's exciting for me to start an organization where I have the freedom to say, I'm just going to look specifically at the needs of women and, and how they grow and what they need in their, their path. Well, we're going to absolutely unpack that and, <laughs> and the ways that you're helping women and certainly our listeners 
to this podcast can benefit from your ideas and advice. Um, as you know, Karen, I, a typical guest question is uh, in the organizational productivity space. And I know you have juggled a variety of things professionally, personally, academically. Uh, so I'm a big believer that nonprofit success, like in any profession, requires great organizational skills. So do you have any kind of go-to tactics or activities that help you stay organized? Um, yes. So I have one that really dates back to going back to my early career starting out in nonprofits is very low tech. It is um, notepads. It's lists. I keep, <laughs> That's okay. Um, That's okay. It's not, not worth changing, but um, I, you know, I keep weekly lists, daily lists, um, but then I also keep notebooks. And so, and they almost serve as a, a a work journal, a record of what projects that I've been working on, but also ideas. Um, they're small, but I keep them. And so I probably at this point have over a hundred of these little notebooks all over. Wow. Um, but, wow. I date them. but it's a great way to look back. Um, again, it's, it's this idea of, of almost having a work journal. So it's got, you know, tactical items, but it also has some strategic ideas and thoughts. And so I may go back and say, and sometimes I just pick it up and, you know, from a year ago and say, okay, this is where I was a year. And this is what I was thinking about a year. How is that connecting to the work I'm doing now? So that's a kind of a low tech way that keeps me focused. Um, and I also use even binders, which is really <laughs> low tech. Um, but it's sure, a great sure. way I find for you know, if I'm working on a big specific project to keep everything organized. That's um, fantastic. And then the the, te the tech one I use is really, you know, this is a, a recent one. It's just using, and again, that's not, you know, I'm sure a lot of people use this, is just setting, using my phone and setting limits, um, especially with apps that I find have, take up time that I you know, could be spending on more productive things. So, you know, setting limits on my social media. Ironically, before I started my business, I was off social media for the most part. Um, but with having right. a business today, you have to be on Instagram and Facebook. And so right. I was finding myself spending a lot of time on those apps when I didn't need to. And I, and I think for business purposes, you can go a day without looking on Instagram and, and everything will be okay. So that's yeah. what I found is setting those limits and it frees up a lot of time. I think that's a fantastic exercise, all of them. And I do believe in the handwritten uh, journaling aspects, the list taking aspects uh, that never goes out of style. Mm -hmm. And it, it sounds to me like what you're doing is in essence, time tracking too, right? Keeping track. Cause I think we all lose track of time mm -hmm. and therefore the efficiency of our day can be lost in a hurry. Absolutely. Well, let's dive into the good work you're doing and, and certainly how it will apply to nonprofit leaders and aspiring leaders. You, in, in some of the material and we've talked about, you make an interesting uh, phrase, or you use an interesting phrase, the, developing your leadership presence. So talk about what is leadership presence and how it might be important to females in the nonprofit sector. Yeah, so um, in the work that I do with, with teaching at, at the graduate school that I teach at and also with working with my clients, um, this idea of leadership presence and, and sometimes people think, you know, what is it and, and how do I get it? Um, but really, you know, leadership presence is your ability to articulate your value, whether that's your insights, your ideas, your expertise, but also being able to influence and connect with others. Right. So it's not standing up there and shouting out your message. You have to find that balance where people want to listen to you. Yeah, that's fantastic. It, it, do you find a lot, obviously the folks that come to you uh, are, are struggling with that ability or what do you find is kind of the typical person in your class or client? Is that often one of the headlines they lead with that I just don't feel confident or comfortable doing just that? 
Yes, I think it's fine. And, and so one of the, when I talk about leadership presence, one of the, the resources that I really like and, and would recommend is, is a book called Own the Room, written by two female consultants. Um, and they talk about this idea of having a voice for yourself and a voice for others. And so I think sometimes when people think about this idea of leadership presence, they struggle with, again, I don't want to go into a room and, and talk all about my specific needs. And I look at my team members and they're not responding to me and I don't feel comfortable versus the other spectrum where I have some people that will come in and say, you know, I just want to be liked. And so I, I really spend a lot of time connecting with my team and, and making sure that they feel supported and then listening to them, but maybe we're not getting as far as we need to in our goals. So it's really finding that balance where, you know, reflecting upon, okay, what is, you know, what do you need? And that can change depending upon your position. It can change depending upon the project that you're working on. Um, but the authors talk about this idea of a signature voice, and that's really where you can balance the two, where you are having a driving voice, where you're clearly articulating what you need out of your, your audience or your team, but then also considering what they need as well. And so, again, and depending upon the circumstance, that can, can kind of go back and forth a little bit. Well, uh, that concept is fascinating. I, I take it, does your signature voice I guess that is consistent, but it is adapted to, say, a large audience setting versus a small team meeting, or does it change more dramatically? No, absolutely. It can definitely change upon you know, the type of, of meeting or, again, if it's a large audience. Um, but a lot of it, you know, has to do with the people that you're speaking with. So you may have a team that, you know, is, is really on task and, and really, you know, has that buy-in to what you want to say. And so you can be, have a little bit more of your voice for yourself. You know, this is what we need to do. Um, but, you know, I'll work into some situations where I think about my teaching experiences, where I may be presenting a theory or concept where I can see that the people in the, the room are not really <laughs> understanding or they're not buying it. And so then right. I need to step back and say, okay, what's, and, and go more towards my voice for others and really understand from them, okay, what's going on? Because if I keep driving ahead and, and, and saying, this is what we're doing and this is what you need to understand, if it's not working, then I'm not going to get the results that I want. So how do I find my signature voice? Is it kind of a personal mission, vision, reflection, or am I trying to plug in better to my organization? Are there tips that you have to help someone find that signature voice? Absolutely. I think the biggest thing, we've, we've talked a lot about this in, in our program together, Pat, is this idea of you know, reflection. So absolutely what you just shared, you know, really think about, okay, think about the times where you do feel that you've left a meeting or you've left a presentation and you think that went really well and, and go back through and, 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 you know, do a postmortem, dissect that, you know, what worked well. Um, but then also think about the times where perhaps you didn't really connect. And so I think, you know, finding that signature voice is, is a really an ongoing um, process. I don't think you wake up one day and say, this is it. I've got my signature voice. <laughs> right. um, but I think it's important to constantly reflect. But I think, again, this idea of consistency is important. And it's something that we should as leaders strive to, because I think for, you know, I know my experiences, I want a leader that I can count on, but I know that's consistently there for me. We all have bad days. We all have days where we may say, okay, I'm, I'm thinking about my own needs. Um, I'm not going to, my voice for others may not be as strong, but Ultimately, you want to have to be known as a leader that, you know, will consistently be there for your team, but also consistently drive the results of the organization, what needs to be done. Yeah, um, so definitely, ref, definitely reflection. Um, and in the book, they talk about, you know, think about leaders that you aspire to or that you admire. And again, dissect that. You know, what do they do? What, what are some specific communication techniques? How do they make you feel excited about your job? How do they make you feel connected to the work that you're doing? Um, and, and think about how you can, you know, integrate that within your own leadership style. That's a, it's great advice. And I talk about it, we, you know, I've, I've described it as the, 
the path to nonprofit leadership in a, in a particular phase um, I call expressing yourself. But you touch on a point to help you express yourself more authentically is identifying uh, two or three aspirational leaders in your field. And I think uh, people don't do that uh, enough and there could be great insight. Um, who are the three people you want to connect with? Uh, we're f- recording this in the end of 2019, but in 2020 or in the year ahead, um, because often leaders, I'm guessing you found Karen too, have gotten very comfortable and confident with, I guess, articulating that uh, a comfortable voice and, and a comfortable vision for what they are and what they're about. Absolutely. Yes. And I, I think, and it doesn't have to take a lot of time. I mean, even if you say, okay, at the end of the week or at the end of the month, I'm going to take 15 minutes. And I know maybe that sounds like a luxury, but you know, again, this is, this is you, you know, take 15 minutes. And, and like you said, just think about, okay, this, this past month or this past week, these are some interactions with other leaders that I saw. And this is what, again, resonates with me. And, and how can I, you know, incorporate that in my own life? Absolutely. Well, and it's a good, it's a good call, Karen, to your kind of journaling, your notebook style. Yes. I'm guessing you're probably very good at uh, going back. I don't know. Do you, is it a daily ritual? when you kind of, or a weekly ritual, when you reflect on these interactions and that strikes me as good advice to anyone to really um, dissect or do the postmortem, as you said, for conversations. And then what do I gain from that? And what do I learn from that? Absolutely. Yes. I wish I could say that I was very intentional that I had a schedule, but it's not a set schedule, but I do try to at least once a month um, as a, as a new business owner, I, I went to a, a conference recently and someone said, you know, even if you're a team of one or two or three, to have that business meeting or have that organizational meeting. And I think the same can be applied to us as individual leaders, you know, to take that time and say, okay, you know, what, what's working for me and what I would have to accomplish. So I do try to set aside, you know, going somewhere, whether it's going to coffee by myself um, and sitting with my notebook and just really just having that change of scenery also really helps, I think, with the reflection. We all need more time to think and reflect. <laughs> uh, and it seems obvious, but I, I see, and I know you do in the sectors with which you work in nonprofits, they're, they're head down, they're, they're running, you know, 50 miles an hour and seldom take the time to reflect, which of course is hugely valuable. Um, you know, Karen, you, you have a particular focus on the small business owner and a small setting, which I think is very relevant to many nonprofit professionals. They're in small shops. Um, are there unique dynamics you see and that when you're coaching someone to, to better engage their teams or what are the kind of things you're seeing or working with when someone is in that kind of small business uh, owner uh, mindset or, or setting? Yes, I think the challenge can be, again, in a small setting is that you're trying to accomplish a lot with a the, with the small group. And so, you know, lines and boundaries in terms of roles and responsibilities can blur. Um, and I also think it's, you know, when you're in a small environment, you want to stay connected. You want to have that positive environment. So there is maybe a tendency to lean towards more of the supportive voice where are you happy? Are you being, you know, is, is everything that you want? Or if you don't like this, then we can adjust. And yes, that's certainly important to have that. But I think it's also important for leaders of small teams to be able to step back and to remove yourself from that you know, we're all in this together environment and make those strategic decisions. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges is to be able to say, okay, we just spent 10 minutes talking about our weekends, having coffee, but now we're having the team meeting and I need to take over that role as the leader because I want us to be successful. So you don't mind the small talk, but you, you're just kind of encouraging that you do have to put your leader hat on at some point, or is that, do you see some folks fall into the trap of, of being, I guess, 
too much social or friendly when they need to become more of an assertive leader? Yes, absolutely. I think, again, we, it's human nature. We all want to be liked. Um, so I think, right. you know, as of small teams, you know, again, you're spending so much time with the same people. It's not, you don't have the opportunity to say, well, I'm walking to the next building to work now. Most likely you're right next to the person. You may be sharing a desk with the person that you're leading. Right. So yeah, it's important to, to set those boundaries. And, and it can be, you know, I, I think about the classes that I teach, you know, yes, I'm the leader, I'm in charge, I'm working with adults who have, you know, who are my peers, they have amazing jobs, you know, they're in graduate school. But, you know, I, I need to find that balance where, you know, we're in this together, we want to get through the concepts, we want to learn this. But at the end of the day, you know, I have to hold them accountable. I have to assign them, you know, projects to do. I have to provide them critical feedback and I have to be comfortable doing that because if not, then they're not going to grow and we're not going to achieve the goals of the college. Absolutely. And so you have to model literally the leadership you're coaching or teaching in your own settings, like in the class classroom or working with uh, groups like that. Absolutely. Um, speaking of things you have to do in group settings, um, you talk about presentations in particular, you use the phrase presentations that inspire yes. and, and, <laughs> I see that all the time, and in my opinion, nonprofit professionals who aspire to move up the the ladder, so to speak, have to be effective presenting, whether it's at a board meeting or a staff meeting or to a community audience. So, I mean, what are the characteristics you see and or teach in terms of making presentations that inspire? Yes, I love presentations. Um, I love to, to work with women, you know, business owners and talk to them about presentations. I love to talk to my students. Um, you know, the, the biggest takeaways is thinking about engaging with your audience. You may think, yes, you're the person standing up delivering the presentation, but it's not about you. It's about the audience. Um, you know, one of my favorite TED Talks is by a woman, um, Nancy Duarte. And the title, I believe, is called The Secret Structure of Great Talks. So if you haven't, in your spare time, if you look nice, up the TED nice. Talk. Um, but one of the things, she actually talks about, obviously, the structure of what makes, it, what makes an effective persuasive speech. Um, but one of the things she talks about is this idea that um, the audience is the hero, that you know, we as presenters are here to help the audience get to where they need to be. And so it's really not about you know, our specific needs, it's about really framing it from you know, what do they know about this topic, what do they need to know, and what can make it interesting and engaging for them. And that's where you know, a second part is, is creativity. I think presentation should be creative in some ways. You know, again, depending upon the, the confines or the organizational culture, you may be somewhat limited, but, but try to think about, you know, how can you keep the audience interested in what you're saying? Well, that's great advice. And I had conversation recently with a colleague that used the phrase as sounds like Nancy does it. One, putting yourself in the shoes of, of your audience member. It's not just about you, which I think takes some of the pressure off instead of feeling like I've got to prove myself, if I view myself in a presentation sense as, hey, they, they want to gain information from me and I want to help. And so to me, that alone is a psychological benefit to changing the tone maybe of your approach. And we talk about in the nonprofit sector, particularly when we're trying to convince donors, what do the donors want to understand or potential donors want to know and how can we help them get more in information and hopefully inspiration? Um, but it sounds like you're bringing kind of a storytelling environment or, or advice to your presentation as well. Absolutely. And I love your, your comment about, you know, the idea of, 
of taking some of the pressure off because that is a real concern when people think about presentations and that can prevent people from presenting is that they don't want to that they're exactly like, oh my gosh i'm standing up here but no absolutely i think of it like a journey it's it's a partnership almost that you know you're in partnership with your audience they're not the enemy um and right. to your point about you know thinking about looking at the donor world absolutely you know you both want the same thing at the end you both have the same mission it's just how can you take them on this path and, and to your point is that through stories is that through statistics um but again you have to really think about your audience as that partner versus i'm standing up i'm telling them what they need to hear um and, and they'll like it no matter what <laughs> no you, you need to really think about you know empathy is a huge tool you know as I, I approach a lot of my work with this thought of empathy and that's really just looking at it from the perspective of my end user whether that's my client whether that's you know a, a free workshop that i'm offering whether that's my graduate student you know, what, who are they, what do they need and how can I help them? Well, that's great advice. And again, I, 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 I'm repeating myself, but it just seems to me that creates a comfort level as a speaker that I think we, we came through our schooling experiences where perhaps public speaking was a graded effort and we still, <laughs> we still hold on to those nervous uh, yes. memories, right? Of I'm going to be graded. And to me, that sets you up for, you know, certainly a challenge, if not failure. Um, are there other kind of pitfalls you've seen, Karen, as you coach and counsel people in a kind of presentation sense? Um, um, creativity absolutely. is one you're, but yeah, tell me what else you yeah. see or don't see that you wish you did. I have a list of 30. So how long do we have? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, well, no. one of the top ones, but I bet there are a bunch <laughs> you've seen. Two more. Um, and the biggest thing, you know, I think so many people, and this again, this is, it's not, you know, it's a, it's a basic idea, but focus on your opening and your closing of your presentation. Yeah, so many good. people just focus on, which is important, certainly the content, the meat of the presentation is, is definitely, you know, obviously critical. But, um, you know, I always tell people I, I coach that, you know, when you start to present your audience, and I think about your own perspective, you as an audience member, you're sitting there, someone, you know, takes the stage or they, they get the attention that they're going to begin speaking. You're interested in what they have to say. So those right. first 30 to 45 seconds are so crucial. And that is the time where you can continue to have your audience go on that path with you, or that's the time where they can say, this is not interesting to me. I don't see the relevance and I'm going to start to zone out. So, so true. Really spend, you know, I spend, when I present myself, I spend maybe 50% of my time thinking about an opening because that's the most important way for me to connect with the audience is to get them to listen. And the same thing with the closing. You know, the two things I tell my students is please don't open with, hi, my name is, and end with, well, that's all. Right, um, you know, you're right. losing those opportunities. So think of a, a theme to open and use that same theme to close your presentation. And it's just a great cohesive way that leaves the audience, you know, feeling good about what they just heard. That's fantastic. And it does make sense. You almost should spend a disproportionate amount of time on the open and close. Not that your content in the middle isn't important, but your content in the middle doesn't matter if, if they zone out after the very Absolutely. beginning. Yes. And we all see that. We've all presented where we, we see that, oh my gosh, we're losing the audience. And then how do you, you know, bring them back? So the, the best thing is to never lose them in the beginning. Do you have kind of commentary on the use of visuals? I know you uh, advocate for creativity, but I know we've talked about before, nobody wants to see a lot of text heavy slides. Um, but do you have kind of personally a philosophy as you present or evaluate presentations as to the use of other uh, props and material? Absolutely. Yes. I, to your point, yes, you do need to have visuals to some extent. Um, but yes, it should definitely not be 
a PowerPoint slide. Um, you know, we have 9,000 words on it. Um, with that being said, it's also, you know, it's also the flow of how you use visuals. So, you know, I think one of the most frustrating things is where someone has a PowerPoint slide and they literally keep that same slide up for 15 minutes. Um, that's definitely <laughs> right. a way to lose your audience. So, you know, a, a format, um, and I think maybe you can post this in the show notes, it's, a, it's called a pechacucha. And it's yes. just a format, you know, it's 20 seconds, 20 slides each. And so it's a great way, especially if you're doing an online presentation where you may not be in front of your audience in person to kind of keep the flow going. And so the audience knows, okay, this is a good rhythm and these are the ideas. Um, but yes, to your point, definitely visuals, um, but, but exciting and well-produced visuals, not, you know, clip art that you can get. I mean, there's so many great um, resources online now where you can get, you know, high quality, high resolution images for free. So I highly recommend, you know, using that. Because yeah, that's what we expect. You know, we expect seeing high quality images at this point. Well, that's, that's great advice. And, and while we in the nonprofit field, perhaps they might say, well, I don't have unlimited budgets. We get it. But the technology and the content is available for you. And there's no reason you can't do an effective uh, production, really, or presentation. Absolutely. But definitely we'll add that, uh, Karen. That's great advice for the Pecha Kucha in the show notes. Okay. Um, and other advice as, uh, you know, we'll circle back to that you might have. But I, I guess I want to, you know, in a virtual sense, join you in one of your workshops. Talk about how uh, when you present or uh, conduct one of these workshops with professionals, what are you trying to accomplish? What's the nature of your work? And, and I'm sure it would apply to nonprofit audiences as well. Well, I think the most important thing, regardless of the topic of the workshop is, at least my goal is to make sure that the audience is leaving with something tangible that they can use in their work life. Yep. So, um, and so part of that comes with the preparation. So it's really, again, going back to this idea of understanding your audience. So, you know, if I'm doing a workshop and even if I'm doing, again, a graduate class, you know, I'm typically not going to have more than 15 people. Um, and so I get information beforehand. I try to gather as much information about the audience and specifically what they need. So that way I can tailor um, my presentation. And so that, you know, I think we all as, as presenters have kind of our certain, you know, stock presentation where key points we want to convey, but we do need to make each workshop personal, each presentation personal to the audience, because if they're not getting anything out of it, then it wasn't worth their time and it wasn't worth my time to be there. So I try to, you know, really tailor it to them. Um, and I try to keep those connections throughout the workshop. You know, I think it's a really powerful tool when, you know, you're, you're talking and, and you Pat, have shared with me that you really need help with, you know, working on your closing. And so I can, you know, be in the workshop and say, okay, Pat, and you shared this with me. These are some of your concerns. As long as, of course, they're comfortable with it, you don't want right. to put anyone on the right. spot. But, but kind of keep that connection because that way, again, it's this idea of the journey that, you know, partnership that we're in it together versus, you know, I'm coming in and just doing the same thing that I do every single time. That's fantastic advice. And, and I have tried to apply that more and work. I do a lot of uh, board retreats, nonprofit board retreats, and even a simple survey in advance of the retreat yeah. uh, is extremely helpful. And and I'm I'm sensitive to, you know, bombarding a volunteer with too much homework. <laughs> they, <laughs> they, they don't necessarily want that. But uh, uh, I think this is very applicable to a lot of settings where we are making a presentation but are there ways for us to gather feedback before we get there and that would then make our our content even more relevant and it sounds like that's what you're doing so that you can adapt the the workshop or the presentation to your audience in a very specific way yes 
And, and I think it shows to the audience that you care, that you're not just coming in with a, a canned presentation and that you're not going to think about their needs. Um, so yes, to your point, absolutely. You don't want to say, okay, here's a 50 question, you know, 50 question survey with, you know, an essay form at the end. But <laughs> right, um, right. You, yes, but if you ask them five questions, you know, just, you know, what, what are you hoping to get out of this? What are some of your concerns? Is there anything else I need to be aware of? Um, and even if you don't get a lot of feedback, you've at least made that effort. And I think that sets the stage that, again, it's this idea of I, I want to be of service to you. Uh, it makes perfect sense. And well, you lift up something. Obviously, your practice includes very much coaching. And I'm a big advocate of coaching and, and encourage all of my nonprofit colleagues to consider ways. Um, and there are different levels, obviously, in seeking mentors and um, networking contacts. but Talk about coaching uh, and when someone, I'm guessing, may go through your workshop or interact with you in your class and say, hey, I'd like to take you on as a coach. What is that like when, when someone's working with you, Karen? Um, again, going back to this idea of a partnership, that's what I see myself as, you know, is that, and I think referencing back earlier too, that one of the most powerful things about coaching is that it creates that space for reflection. So when you're entering in a coaching relationship, whether that's, you know, you're meeting with somebody virtually or in person for 30 minutes every other week, that's 30 minutes of dedicated time where, again, you're reflecting the back on, you know, these are some things that are working for me as a leader, or these are some things that are not working for me. Um, so, you know, I love coaching. And then honestly, I don't, you know, I, I can reflect back for them. But a lot of the times when I find coaching is that the person I'm working with pretty much knows what they should be focused on. Right, um, and so while I can right. offer some specific strategies, I think you know the, the biggest thing I can do as a coach is just pose those questions beforehand. And as we get together is, again, creating that space where they think, oh, this makes sense now. Um, but then also, you know, holding a little bit of accountability, you know, making sure that we're following through with what we talk about. And that's another big part of it as well. Uh, I could not agree more. I mean, there's a discipline, right? And the coach is not yes. going to solve every problem and do your work for you, but they're going to create an environment that allows you to reflect and the discipline to kind of set up a pace to get stuff done and be accountable. So I, I'm sure the folks that you work with in that coaching setting are benefiting from those exact points. Um, coaching, Karen, is something we've talked about as part of a professional development kind of uh, menu uh, or a collection of things that strengthen someone's professional and personal path. Uh, what else do you advocate uh, or recommend in terms of professional development? I'm sure many of your students and clients are asking you things to do to get better. Are there any ones in particular you lift up? Um, I think, again, I know one of your um, previous episodes talked about this idea of informal mentoring, and I, and I love this. And so, again, right. it's not necessarily a specific program that you can follow, but um, you know, I've been fortunate in my career where I've had, you know, supervisors that, you know, could, could offer, you know, support and, and mentoring. But I've also learned that um, you as an individual need to, to seek out those people on your own sometimes because right. not one leader is going to give you everything that you need to have. Um, and so, and I've also found, you know, for me, as I've started my business, I, you know, I know I've reached out to you. I've reached out to, to people that I respect and admire who've done what I've done. Um, and so I'm not necessarily saying, because I think that may be off-putting if I said, Penn, would you enter a formal mentoring relationship? <laughs> right, months, right. You know, you have so much on your plate, but I, you know, I can say, Penn, you know, I'm, I'm really struggling with this. You know, do you have 30 minutes to talk, you know, via Skype? Do you have, you know, can we meet for a coffee? And I have found that, you know, not everyone is going to respond to your email. That's been a humbling experience for me. Right, um, right. But a lot will. And so I think if you need to always be aware of, you know, who is in your network. 
Um, who's somebody that you want to learn from? And just reach out to them. And so I think if you can keep that as a, again, going this, back to this idea of discipline, if you can keep that as an ongoing, you know, part of your leadership path is just saying, okay, at this stage, this is what I need to work on. And I admire this person and I would love to talk to them. And again, the majority of the people, if you say, can I take 30 minutes of your time this week or next week, um, are going to want to help you. And, and we'll take that time. And I think that's the most, one of the most valuable professional development um, strategies you can employ. That's great advice. And I would echo wholeheartedly your, your point. In other words, I, I like the way you even said to someone I'm reaching out to 30 minutes. It shows immediately I'm respectful of their time. I'm not going to get them into an kind of open-ended um, conversation or a series of conversations. <laughs> and and I would always advise, do your homework, um, because I do think people generally like to help others that are following the same path, and in our case, the nonprofit profession. But do, do your homework. And I think if you acknowledge uh, things that they have accomplished in their career, it makes you even more kind of attractive as a potential mentor conversation. And um, I bet the majority of times people will respond favorably. Yes, absolutely. I, um, yeah. And, and sometimes it's also helpful to bring something small. <laughs> That's what I do. Well, it, <laughs> a, a cookie or something. Um, a, token. <laughs> a token of gratitude is, yes. a, is a very smart <laughs> and just shows yeah, your, your respect and gratitude for their work. And I also find Karen that having a couple of questions, in other words, I've had folks say that are happy to mentor a young professional, let's say in nonprofit, but they'll come back to me and say, yeah, I was happy to, to talk to him or her, but they, they really didn't even have kind of a question or a series of questions that I could help with. And so I think I find folks that are in that mentoring environment, yeah, they, they give them something specific to, to chew on and, and let them help you. Um, for example, in a question I had on my list for you, Karen, is... Um, and I think a good one, if I were exploring a mentor conversation, the pursuit of graduate education. So yeah. in other words, I'll get to, to your scenario in a minute. But if I'm, if I'm reaching out to a mentor, I could say, hey, you're now an executive director of a nonprofit. Did your graduate degree, was it necessary? Was it helpful? Or if you didn't pursue it, why? But that to me is an example of using a specific kind of line of questioning to make your conversation more, more fruitful. Um, so turning that same question, Karen, to you, because you have an impressive academic journey, um, including a doctorate, how, how did you evaluate kind of, uh, continuing education all the way to the doctoral level? That's a great point, Pat. because again, I think, you know, as we think about professional development, it should be meaningful and it should be intentional. We shouldn't just say, I'm going to do this just to do it because right. you and I both know it's, it's time consuming. It's, um, can be expensive, um, a lot of opportunity costs as you get further along into your career. So, um, yes. Yeah, so for me, you know, I got my master's before I was newly married. I, I was living in Kansas City. I didn't really know anyone, so it was a great time to go back to school. Right. Um, but as I went to go back and get my doctorate, that was definitely took. I, th I think I was thinking about that honestly for eight years before I actually applied. Wow. Um, and I don't regret that because I know it was the right decision when I, when I did it. But um, yes, I think you really, to your point, need to think about, you know, why do I want this degree? And I, and yes, while I, having an advanced degree, having, you know, that doctor um, before in front of my name is, is, is great and gives me so much credibility. It has to be more than that. in, in my opinion, you, know, you really need to know that you're going to get something out of the program. So um, I definitely would evaluate not just what you hope to do with the degree after you graduate, 
But think about, again, this idea of your path and your journey during it. Um, so for me, it was really important to go to a great school where I would be surrounded with, you know, peers and people that I could learn from um, and really get the most out of the experience. So I think that's really important to evaluate. You know, what do you want during your journey, during the time you're getting your degree, but then also what do you want to do with it afterwards? That's such good advice, Karen. It's not just a kind of certification to hang on the wall, but if you don't embrace the process while you're in it, the networks, the education, the information um, is a great uh, additional element to consider as anyone pursues, whether it be a master's or doctorate or certification in, in the nonprofit world. Many professionals are considering what's called the CFRE uh, certification for fundraising, but I think your point is a good one. It's more than just the end of that effort, but it's during that effort that making sure it's valuable and, and frankly worth the time and resources it requires. Yes. Well, Karen, we're coming to the end of our time and I'm very grateful for your advice on so many topics. I, I guess, is there any other kind of final advice uh, as, as you think about these topics that particularly in, in your expertise around communication, is there something a listener could begin to do today to improve their communication skills and some of the things you talked about improving their leadership presence? Yes. And I think it, it goes back to thinking about, you know, what your audience, what your team needs. Um, and one of the most powerful things we can do as communicators is, is again, this is not going to you know change the world, um, but it's just, <laughs> it's just listening. It's being an intentional listener. Right. So many of us, you know, listen to respond and it's really hard to be show empathy and understand people if we're not really listening to them. So, you know, and, and I see as my graduate students explore leadership theories, so many of them come back to this idea. It's really about building those relationships and, and truly listening and listening with an intention to listen and not to respond. So if you, if you want to be a better communicator, just start the next day and say, you know, I'm going to make an effort to really take the time and listen to what people are saying. And, and what can I do with that information versus just kind of going through that driving voice? Could not agree more. And it's so applicable to fundraising, again, okay. using a nonprofit element that's critical to every nonprofit professional or more often than not. Um, often I see folks that try to talk their way to be good fundraisers when they should be listening more and they will be more effective. And I'll tie back to your other great advice you started with, the journaling aspect of your notebooks. If we all would be more disciplined about leaving conversations and forcing ourselves to reflect on what we heard, yes. I bet that would make us a better listener, you know, yes. as opposed to, <laughs> if, if, if I don't remember anything that you said during the conversation, then obviously I didn't do a good job listening, right? And I can't write anything down. Yes, I'm a, I'm a big advocate of taking notes when people are talking. Um, you know, part of this when I come, you know, from grading presentations for so many years, I've always take notes. Um, but yes, within the meeting, you know, and I, and I sometimes will explain to someone, you know, I want to make sure that I'm hearing your points. So I'm going to take down some notes. Um, that so honors I, them. Yeah, it doesn't. Yes. It honors their, their time and their content. Yes. All right, Karen, you know, my question of every guest as I finish, tell me a good book, anything you've read lately or recommend that might be along the lines of uh, good professional development help. Okay, I, I'll, I'll, I'll be brief because I have three. I did think <laughs> okay, about this good, good. Um, So the, the one was, is easy because I'm currently reading it. Um, it's The Moment of Lift by Melinda Gates. Okay. Uh, and I think it's a great book for people in nonprofit because obviously she talks a lot about you know, these wicked problems, these large societal issues we have. Um, and but there's, you know, so there's a lot of obviously storytelling, but 
I'm reading it from a perspective where I've gotten a lot of insight about how we tackle these problems and how we work with different groups and how we collaborate. So I think from a nonprofit perspective, it's an interesting um, book. Great recommendation. Yes, ma'am. Um, my second book is by one of my favorite. Um, he's, a, he's an academic. He's at Wharton, um, Adam Grant. And I love all of his, his books. But this one's called Give and Take. And okay. it really talks about how we, by helping others, um, authentically, we actually makes us more successful. So it's a lot of, you know, social science that talks about how, you know, we may have this idea, well, if we help all the time, we're hurting ourselves professionally, but it goes into how that's really not true. So it's a great book. I highly recommend it. Excellent. Excellent. And my last book is probably one that most people have not heard of. Um, it was written in 1998. I read it in my master's program. Wow. Um, it's by, um, he's since, um, you know, sadly passed away, but written by um, someone who worked at Hallmark Cards for 30 years, and it's called Orbiting the Giant Hairball. And basically it talks about how organizations are these big hairballs um, with all the you know, processes and, and rules and regulations, um, and how do we as, as individuals and leaders orbit responsibly around that so we can embrace creativity but still keep um, in the rules, so to speak, of, of, of an organization. So it's a very fun book. It has pictures. It's got poems it's, it's just a really fun short book and i don't know if you can call it a business book but if you can it's probably the most fun business book you will ever read so. we, we all we all need more fun reading in our life and uh the title alone of your third book makes me curious and uh likely an addition to my library so thank you karen great recommendations and uh, we will add them to the show notes and of course add information on how to find you I, Karen, any ways if, if folks want to learn more about your practice, your coaching, your consulting, where would you like them to go? Absolutely. Yes. Um, you can go to our website, which is cottageinsights.com. Um, and then um, we're also on social media, as I shared. Um, on Instagram, we are at Cottage Insights. So um, we check, share a lot of information. Um, and yes, I would love to, to talk with anybody um, about personal and professional growth. Well, thank you so much, Karen, for your time, conversation, and great advice and for, for joining me today on The Path. Thank you so much, Pat, and I really enjoyed it. All right. Take care. Thanks. You too. Well, thanks again for listening into my conversation with Karen, and I hope you are considering ways you can specifically improve your leadership presence, your ability to deliver presentations that inspire and how you can be more successful managing a team. Check out the show notes associated with this episode if you want to add one of Karen's recommended books to your library. And don't forget to share this episode as well with someone else who might be on the same leadership journey you are. If you haven't already, please subscribe. And if you've enjoyed this kind of topical discussion, leave a review on your favorite podcast host, and help me get the word out to so many others who are doing great work in the nonprofit sector. Keep up the good work you're doing, and I'll see you next time on The Path.